Welcome to this bonus episode of Pulp Kitchen. If you've just listened to episode 103, which is our latest episode, you'll know that this episode is all about dream scenario and anatomy of a fool. In episode 103, we covered Napoleon and The Hunger Games, The Ballad of <gasps> Songbirds and Snakes, the very long title. But this episode, I'm going to be reviewing Nicolas Cage's new interesting film, Dream Scenario. Mm-hmm. Lots of posters around for that. Mm-hmm. Interesting little premise. And then also my thoughts on Anatomy of a Fool, which James reviewed a few weeks ago. So, James. So let's do Dream Scenario yeah. first, which I think you've been curious as well. If you've had more time, you probably yeah, caught it. Yeah, 100%. So Dream Scenario is a, described as a black comedy fantasy film um, directed by Christopher Borgley and produced by Ari Aster. And the Ari Aster production like, name attached to it is, I think, actually a slight misgiving if you think it's going to be like an Ari Aster film. It's much more in the vein, I think, of something like a Charlie Kaufman film or okay. um, uh, like something, something like that. Here's the premise. Um, essentially, Nicolas Cage plays a uh, m- very middle-of-the-road, bumbling, middle-aged college professor. Not college, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, your college professor in, you know, generic uh, New England place. And he is kind of in a midlife crisis point of his life. He, uh, all of his peers are getting their work written about and having career success, but he's kind of stuck. He's a tenured professor, but he's Mm. kind of in kind of the doldrums of of his life. And he, what I would describe is like in like Paul Giamatti mode, which I mean is that (laughs) he is wearing a jumper and a shirt. He has a beard. He always wears like a parka. Slightly stuttering. Slightly stuttering. He's a sort of mild mannered professor type. Um, And in, in this context, uh, you know, he has, a, he has a wife, he has a family, everything's sort of fine. But like I said, he's got this kind of veil of, uh, this vein rather of midlife crisis bubbling underneath mm-hmm. the surface. What happens is that he becomes increasingly aware that people are having dreams that feature him. It becomes what it's described as a kind of uh, dream epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only kind of, it's not necessarily all around the world, but like it's this sort of spontaneous thing where first of all, he bumps into someone he knows and they say, this is so weird. I haven't seen you in years, but you've been in my dreams actually. Like it's really weird, like a couple of times. And then um, he'll go into class and he'll be giving a lecture and you can see his students sort of muttering about him. And then he gets a call from someone saying, I had this dinner party last night and you wouldn't believe it, but and there's this whole thing about this woman who's never met him, describes him, and then showed a picture of him, and he becomes aware it's a thing, and it becomes like a phenomenon. He becomes, in a way, this kind of like pseudo celebrity. Very quickly, is on the news, and and is this kind of phenomenon of someone who is appearing in someone's dreams. Obviously, contextualized with this is the fact that as someone who is in midlife crisis, as someone who feels creatively and careerly um, stunted, how does this newfound fame essentially affect him how does he change to his sort of scenario and also what happens when these dreams change when perhaps the, the nature of the dreams are become slightly more sinister or slightly more mm, troubling you kind of i guess you could kind of describe it as kind of like a social science science fiction kind of concept um and I have to say, it's odd. It's it's funny at times. It's very witty. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. And on the whole, I, I actually I really really liked it. It's a oh, really I you were re- prepping for a negative take. There, no, no. Yeah. I actually genuinely I was really quite surprised. At it. And what I liked is when I saw it, you could feel the whole audience really leaning into this premise. And I think I think the the the, the thing that works first of all is that the film really has a good handle on the on the tone mm. of, of of the film. It knows how to deliver 
this premise in a way that is interesting, that the film takes seriously, and in a way that um, also maximizes the amount of humor and discomfort we can get out of it. I think, first of all, the, the big highlight of this film is that it's a really good Nicolas Cage film. Okay. I think what's great in this, it is that it's a film that understands and, and knows how to use Nicolas Cage and casts him really well. Because I think this film knows that a lot of films will go in and cast Nicolas Cage to do Cage Rage, to do Big Cage. And if you watch any interview with Nicolas Cage, regardless of what you think of his acting abilities, and in a way we've talked before, Nicolas Cage, is, mm. he's not a good actor nor a bad actor. He's kind of a genre into, onto himself, right? But if you listen to any interviews with Nicolas Cage, he is someone who takes acting very seriously, is very interested in film history, is very well read, is very interested in every single I role. he's been successful in a lot of really different great films. Absolutely. He's also made a lot of, lot of talent. Yeah, yeah, oh, but, but absolutely, he, he's, he's not shy from picking strange projects, mm. okay? And what this film does, instead of going doing what big, big, bigger films like Renfield would do, it's like, oh, it's Nicolas Cage, let's go big with this. Oh, it's like, no, no, no. If we give Nicolas Cage a small role where he has to play a normal person, he has to play a normal person, which makes Nicolas Cage have to repress all of his eccentricities under the surface, which means that it actually perfectly captures this guy's midlife crisis, this guy's anxieties underneath. So whenever Cage will do something just ever so slightly quirky, it worked for me because I'm like, yes, this guy is... is um, has been stuck in inertia for so long as this college professor, but obviously mm. underneath he's actually raging. And I think it works really, really well. I think Nick- Nicolas Cage is really invested in it, really thinking about what he's doing. And uh, the comedic beats of this film are very specific, are very tied to the premise. And Nicolas Cage pulls off, there's a lot of good physical comedy. And there's actually a re- really good couple of like standout scenes that you can kind of take out and go that was a really executed comedic scene in terms of dialogue Mm. that was a really well executed scene in terms of the physical comedy of it and the choreography of it and even when people like he starts to ask people like his college you know students uh who had dreams about me then and what happened in them and you have these really wild scary bizarre dreams and in which nicholas cage and his half zip in a jumper just sort of like walks into the frame and it's really quite funny and charming so it's a really good nicholas cage performance in a film that understands how to use nicholas cage by going in the opposite direction um with a film like a premise like this what tends to happen is it falls apart in the third act. This film doesn't do that. It does slightly run out of steam and does slightly lose its edge. It kind of shifts from being something about fame and this really weird concept into slightly being about mob mentality, cancel culture, um, which is fine. But I remember thinking, oh, okay, we're we're moving on to that now. Um, But it doesn't fall apart like a lot of these films do. It just, it, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm content with the way that the film ends, with the last line of the film, the kind of emotional point that the film reaches. I kind of, I'm happy to sit back and go, yeah, might have, might have just lost it towards the edge, but actually, towards the end, but I think actually... Long, short? About 100 minutes. Okay, nice. um, And the perfect length, really. Yeah, it needed, yeah. needed to be no longer. Um, I mentioned, sorry, in the, I mentioned in the dialogue, uh, that scene of great dialogue, Michael Sarah turns up for about two scenes. Okay. And it's really great to have him. And you kind of have this like tete-a-tete between Michael Sarah and Nicolas Cage, which is oh, nice. <laughs> really well played. Um, there is something kind of deeper underneath going on because he's a, he teaches, I think, biological engineering or biological history, a bit like anthropology or something, where he's, he's all interested in about ants and, 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 and the idea of the herd. And he does this lecture at the beginning about 
you know, what it's like. A zebra uses stripes to stand out. On on, an individual, a zebra stands out because it has stripes, but as a herd, it blends in. And this kind of idea of herd mentality are being exposed predator prey. There's kind of something under there. Mm. I don't know if it's necessarily as sharp as we think it to be, but it's kind of around. But yeah, I got to the end thinking that is a really curious, bizarre, uncomfortable, but fun, rewarding. I think I, I actually, there's a couple of times I knew that you would find it really funny. Nice, I okay. could hear if you were next to me, you would find it really uncomfortable, nice. really well choreographed. I can hear you sort of going. <gasps> <laughs> um, so if anyone does have a chance to go and see Dream Scenario, I recommend it. Like I'll check said, it out. It's only a hundred minutes, good Nicolas Cage performance. In a film that knows how to use him, and shot really nicely on on film. Yeah, as well. I noticed in the trailer, sort of beautiful New England fall setting, slightly like uh, window light blowing out skin yes. tones. Yeah, yeah, love it. Love um, uh, yeah, I, I, I was really surprised and delighted. I'm glad I caught it. And that was Dream Scenario. Nice, guys. If you've seen Dream Scenario and you had thoughts or wanted to send them into the show, as always, send them to hello at popkitchenpodcast.com and we'd love to read them out on the show. Moving on to Anatomy of a Fall, which you reviewed as a bonus a couple of weeks ago when we did our 100th episode. We did that and Bottoms in the same episode. Uh, James reviewed it. I've now gone to see it, just to remind people that it was the winner of the Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival mm-hmm. this year. It's What is the premise of Anatomy of a Fall? Again, it is about a writer uh, uh, played by... Sandra Huller. Huller. Thank you. A writer played by Sandra Huller who lives with her husband who's also uh, a writer but less successful. He's more of a teacher. They live with their son who is visually impaired after an accident in their past, which is actually very significant to the plot. They live uh, there in this snowy, um, sort of secluded alpine situation in mountainous France. Snowbound, cold, and the film begins with... um, uh, the film actually begins brilliantly with Sandra Huller trying to give an interview to someone at the same time as her husband is working upstairs. And you have this sort of very passive-aggressive use of music. Um, and meanwhile, the dog is running around and the sun goes out with him. And, but within 20 minutes, the, the sun comes back from the walk and the husband is dead on, on the ground, having fallen apparently, from the top of, of the... Uh, uh, P.I.M.P. by 50 Cent, still blaring. Yeah, exactly. Me. Yeah, the musical version. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the husband was upstairs doing repairs and, it, and you know, the authorities are called, the, you know, measures are taking place and it, it, they are unable to conclude whether the husband died as a result of, 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 a, of a blow to the head that was from the fall or if it was... He, ha- he was given the blow to the head and then fell. Was he fall? Did he fall? Was he pushed or did he commit suicide? It's like this, this general um, spectacle around it. And the first third of the film kind of is involved in the immediate aftermath. But then the film, for me, really kicks into gear in the second two thirds when it becomes a legal courtroom drama in which Sandra Huller, as the wife, is put on trial for the apparent ostensible um, involvement in her husband's death. That's not a spoiler. That is that is the, the premise of the film. Of the film. Um, before I go into it, I will say that this is absolutely no comment on the film itself. I have a bit of a bad track record of going to see a um, critically renowned European art house film immediately after work. I saw this at six o'clock in okay. a warm, cozy, comfortable art house screening room yeah and when you watch a film in which the first 40 minutes are snowy and and crisp and crunchy and you know paced to a certain degree i am very 
sad to admit that I did struggle to keep my eyes open in the oh first no. third. That is not a comment on the film at all. It, just... it is all for the reasons I just said. You sit, it's six o'clock, you've just finished work, you're a bit mm. tired, you sat and down, really it's tight. warm. It's, it's it doesn't cozy. rush its opening and because uh, the details of yeah. it are important. It can't rush every setup that yes. it needs to show that. And but I've yeah. had half an hour of adverts. And so by the time, and I, mm. James, I had a packet of minstrels to keep me awake and everything. Like, but, drip feed. but literally I was just there and it was just giving the heavy eyelids. Oh, and, I, no. and I had that with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm. I had that with uh, Burning a few weeks, a few years ago. And look, I'm sorry, it happened. But what was, and I was pinching myself. I was shifting, I took my glasses off. I was rubbing my eyes. I was oh, like, come no. on, George, come on. Um, That's just that. But when it got into the courtroom scenes and the mm. film really did kick up a gear, it really did manage to pull me out of my slumber. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I do think on the whole, the film is, is really excellent and really, really well executed and is this fantastic examination, as you said, of a relationship. It's not just an anatomy of a fall, it's an anatomy mm. of a relationship. What I, the pleasure I got out of it is that it, you have this great drama that is created when you have the the raw chaos, or not even chaos, but it's just like the raw matter that is a marriage and a relationship meeting the cold, hard, clear logic of the law. And you're realizing that what happens when those two things meet, the, the, a, a relationship is in constant flux, a, a mm. constant dialogue, things are always changing. You've got so much history and so many tensions, but that doesn't necessarily mean a relationship is not working. But then of course, in the context of something bad that's happened, how does that look in the eyes of the law? You know, if a film like Before Midnight showed the dramatic potential of a couple, a couple in the middle ages just at it, having a huge argument, Anatomy of a Fool is like, takes that dramatic potential, then wraps it into a legal thriller mm. and thinks, what would have happened if Celine, what would have happened if it. Celine had fallen out the window? Yeah. And I think that's just, it's a really interesting meeting. And the film, you know, the superficial or like surface level pleasures of the film are about the legal process, mm. but really the deeper, more enjoyable, the deeper pleasure of the film is really actually about a relationship, is as much about a couple and, and, and a marriage. And, you know, there's this old maxim, and I think someone uses in the review that was like, you know, it, it takes, you, the only those who are in a marriage know how it works. And there's this whole idea of language and being the limits of communication, the limits of what you can actually prove and, and, and distinguish before what you know about something, what you know about someone becomes tacit, becomes... And that's there in the courtroom as well. Well, exactly. Like failing to communicate. So you have... Uh, yeah, so you, there's this hard to articulate something that is so raw and so sort of... Uh, inexplicable as a relationship trying to s limit that down into to, to cold literal facts for the legal process and what the film really does well to heighten the tension of that is it goes well you've got uh, also a language barrier between you've got Sandra Huller who speaks who's German and her husband who is French but they speak English with each other you've also got but a French legal process happening around them so the film really oscillates between French and English you have a son who is visually impaired who has to his whole um, experience of his parents' relationship and of the trial is is through listening, mm. and he has to really sitting there in the the the, um, the the courtroom. He has to switch between the conflict of what he's hearing as presented as facts, but what he knows as well and what he feels to be true mm. from his experience of his parents' relationship. And it, you can see him struggling to try and explain that it wasn't like that, but I don't know how I can explain it. Mm. You also have, and I think 
people underplay this, but the role of the dog in this film as well. The dog who's yeah. an all-seeing witness. Yes. But obviously he's not able to communicate. Just on those last two points, by the way, fantastic child actor. Yeah. I mean, an unbelievable, really, genuinely, really genuinely. Considering the mature subject matter and like adult- 11 year old kid. I, I genuinely would like him to be nominated for best supporting actor. Dog actor as well. Best, 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 best dog acting Best canine unit ever. Give that dog an Oscar. Best canine Literally, unit. The dog is basically not really relevant to the story except for <laughs> one scene. it really is. And that <laughs> yeah. dog delivers. That, Brilliant. A Daniel Day Lewis. I wanted dog to say Lewis it, but I didn't forwards. want you to no, like, no, look no. at the dog when I reviewed Absolutely. it. Absolutely, I was really but like- when, when the moment with the dog happens, I was like, <gasps> yeah, <laughs> I was like, please don't, but obviously go and see it. Really, really good dog acting. Um, I think that- uh, Sorry, just on your, just picking up on your point about the boy listening, it was also really relevant that when that argument is played in the court, it's audio. Yes. And the entire legal proceedings is listening to it in the same way that the son yes. would. I thought that was a really important point. And it's like, well, well. what does it happen when you have an argument like that where you don't see the body language and hear the context? Mm. It's just a really interesting discussion and engagement with that, that topic. Um, I think that you could go down a route and start to think about, oh, um, is, is there actually a... Um, um, I'll be talking spoilers in this. No, I'm going to talk around it because I think I, think, people, I, think I, think not, I want I think people not. to go and see it. But, you know, you could go down the route thinking, okay, what actually happened and trying to find that. Mm. But I also think that there's something to be said about, in a way, the kind of, not point of the film, the ethos of the film is kind of like, it's not about, you can't know, it's about the limits of what you can know about something and, and what you kind of have to, in a relationship, how much you can actually know the other person. And in life, things happen, and if you don't know, the court case can conclude something, but it won't always reveal the truth. Yeah, or resolve. Or, or resolve, resolve but you get a clearer sense of who these people are and you can deduce your own idea yeah. from that. I, I felt nourished without necessarily being told point mm. blank, here's exactly where it was. I think it's really, I think it's really- Oh, and sorry, and I think like when it does flash back, that gave me, I think, a really good sense of revealing something without revealing everything mm. to me. And I thought that was real. My friend made a good point about the dog. It basically says that you could read an argument, which I won't say too clearly, but like basically like, you know, maybe the dog has <laughs> knowledge, okay? Yeah. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really well executed and really well, well done. My only, uh, there was one scene where, I don't think this is a spoiler, what I just thought was just like, I don't think this needs to be in here really, is that they, there's a slight, there's two moments where they focus on, and it's a scene that kind of comes out of nowhere between her, the lawyer and her, yeah. so when they're having a drink. Yeah. And, suddenly, and it suddenly started to veer into this direction of, about, about them and how they know each other. And I just suddenly was like, yeah, I don't need this here. It doesn't oh, really okay. go anywhere. And it's just this extra layer of- the See, I liked, their, I liked their dynamic. I enjoyed how immediately close they were. And te technically like not, they were friends before they were mm. professionals. And that added a really interesting dynamic because I thought the lawyer didn't know. It was also trying to figure out- Yeah, I the lawyer And you as the audience are also, you don't know yeah. about Sandra and she's very good at sort of being empathetic outwardly, but you don't necessarily know what she's doing inwards, which I thought was quite good. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I liked their relationship, but I just felt that one particular scene, I was like, okay, no, we don't where we didn't going need it. We didn't, Fine, yeah. just, I just didn't need it. But on the whole, uh, I really recommend people to go watch it. And we said in the main episode, in a, in a, in a week, weeks where we've had three two-hour 40 movies, yeah. Napoleon, this, and Hunger Games 5. And Killers of the Flower Moon, only oh, very recently as well. well. But... Uh, well, well uh, hang on. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> to be my point, because yeah. I really liked Killers of the Flower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my point is, against the two other two hour forty movies that are out at the moment, this is the one to see. Yeah, absolutely. I felt I did feel the length of Anatomy of a Fall, but I was interested throughout. 
Mm. I, re I really was like, and, and it starts very slow and I'm like, okay, I kind of see. But yeah, the, the court scene really, I was like, mm. God, I need to know. Really I need to see this. I thought the French lawyer was brilliant. Yeah. He was really, really good. Just so matter of fact and plain, but like insistent on the knowledge. I and seeing yes. like him defending the side was just so well done. So both of our other halves are barristers and I would like yeah. to watch... The, that's told with, lawyer, with I told them, the lawyers to see it because I want to be like are you actually I mean I know this is the French you know, justice yeah, totally. system and I'm like are, are they allowed to be that like aggressive yeah very very pushy very like how could you possibly do this anyway I really recommend it it's yeah. definitely a real a real one to watch um, that's Anatomy of a Fool and that was the bonus episode from Pulp Kitchen for this week and if you have seen Anatomy of a Fool Send us, send us any thoughts. You might have already done it, but send us in again. Hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. We look yeah. forward to reading them out on the show. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Pop Kitchen. We really enjoy putting them out when we get to putting them out. Don't forget, we post new episodes of the show every single Wednesday. Next week, we're going to have more films. Saltburn, yes, Saltburn most likely. At, and probably May, December as well. So stay tuned for that. Thank you very much for spending your time with us. We will see you next week. <laughs>